rather than taking something that nature has grown, leather, it's a hide, and then putting all sorts of plastics and chromium and all the nasty chemicals that are associated with the leather industry on top of it, removing the hair, we get sort of to make it in a more pure form directly towards the product that's desired. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to the 59th episode of the Business for Good podcast. Before we get on to this one, wow, did a lot of folks have a lot to say about the last episode with Maple Leaf Foods. Reactions from listeners were plentiful, from being impressed by what the meat company is doing with its investments in plant-based meat, to disliking their answer about the ad they placed critical of other plant-based companies, to even some industry press covering the interview. Yes, that's right, Meeting Place Magazine published an entire column about our interview, which was actually quite a thoughtful column. I felt it was basically welcoming Maple Leaf's innovation in plant-based protein. So pretty good sign, I thought. So if you didn't yet listen to episode 58, know that it's the one that everyone's apparently talking about. So you may want to go back and check it out. But whether you loved it or not, I'm glad so many of you found the interview worthwhile. But what is certainly also worthwhile is the work that this episode's guest David Breslauer of Bolt Threads is doing. I wrote a little bit about Bolt's work growing real spider silk without spiders in my book, Clean Meat. And I was even more intrigued when I saw recently that his company has now moved into mimicking leather too. Now, most leather alternatives are made from plastic, which is why it's called pleather. And it's not really the eco-friendliest, but it can also lack in function too. Now, Bolt Threads, on the other hand, is making its alt weather by fermenting mycelium, or the root-like structures of fungi, and they even inked a deal with Adidas to start selling their mycelium leather shoes in 2021. That's right, this very year. What was started as a project in 2009 by some students who applied for government grants is now a VC-backed startup that's raised more than $200 million. $200 million. They've gotten celebrity endorsements, and they're now on the verge of entering their first major commercialization 11 years after they got started. It is a wild ride that they've been on, and David has some important insights for anyone seeking to use business to solve social problems. I hope you enjoy hearing Bolt's story as much as I did. I now give you David Breslauer of Bolt Threads. David, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's awesome to have you. I have been following your work for a long time. I've been a fan of your work. I've even written about your work, but I am embarrassed to say that we have never uh, met or crossed paths or connected online. So uh, I have been like this uh, stalker in the in the uh, shadows uh, <laughs> touting your work, but great to actually get a chance to talk now. Yeah, absolutely. Our paths were bound to cross eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let me just get right down to it. Oh, I want to ask you a, a question that I know you've addressed before, but you know, a lot of the times, like if, if you were to talk with a company uh, that's just getting started, because you know, Bolt Threads got started in 2009, we're now more than a decade later, would you have thought that you'd be doing what you're doing today? Or do you think it's taken longer than you've expected? Do you think that it is like more pivots than you would have expected because what you're doing now is kind of different from what you were doing then. So tell me, if you had talked to David in 2009 and said in 2021, here's what it's going to look like, how shocked would he have been? Oh, wow. Um, David in 2009 would would probably not even recognize 
bolt as it is today based on what he thought the outcome would be. Um, <laughs> I think he would be very pleased um, mm. with, with where we've come, but absolutely, there's the only the only thread that is consistent that he would recognize is the fact that we were always fascinated by natural materials, um, particularly ones that uh, perform well or otherwise hard to make. Um, and we always wanted to make them in, in whatever context, natural materials that sort of the, that nature has evolved over all these years, these billions of years that grow renewably, obviously, and reintegrate back into the environment. And so there was always that focus and fascination. Um, I don't think I, he, 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 me, I don't think back then I would have known just how hard we would have gone into consumer apparel. Um, we, we knew there was an angle there, but really when we sort of started looking behind uh, the curtain, saw all the challenges and opportunities, all the sustainability issues, and realized that's where we felt we could have a big mm -hmm. impact, and that's what we got to know. Um, that became our our primary focus, um, mm -hmm. and where we really started iterating with customers um, in order to develop new materials. Well, um, let's just start from the beginning then. So, uh, you know, presume that people don't know your story, of course. And first, I'll say, I think it's okay to refer to your old self in the third person since all the cells <laughs> in your body have been replenished uh, since 2009. You're, you know, a completely different person. Uh, so I, I give you the license to, oh, refer, you. to the refer to the 2009 David in third person. But, um, you know, you started out with this idea to make spider silk, right? So I know that you were in school. What happened? Why were you thinking about spider silk at all? Why, why is spider silk something that's worth replicating? Uh, yeah. So when I was uh, in graduate school, and this was uh, around 2006 that I started on spider silk, you know, the concept of biomimetics, what can we learn from nature? What has nature built? How can we mimic it? Um, how has it optimized for solutions in ways that might be counterintuitive to us as scientists and engineers? That was, you know, really a popular concept at the time. And I had been learning on about building micro machines and sort of flu microfluidics, fluidic systems that were the size of your thumbnail, but could do all sorts of laboratory uh, chemical mixing and, and uh, all sorts of biological manipulation. And inspired by the, the biofield of biomimetics or the, that attitude, um, you know, I, I was working around an area where there are a ton of spiders on the UC Berkeley campus and in talking to my advisor, the question came up, you know, how do spiders make this silk that is, uh, well known for being incredibly strong, but you can't buy it commercially. We barely understand how spiders do that. It takes so much energy and has taken so much innovation for us to make synthetic fibers that are that strong. What do spiders do um, that is so, so almost magical? Yeah, so and, for people, David, who don't know how strong spider silk is, because I'd imagine most people think, hey, I've walked through a spider web before. It didn't feel that strong to me. Explain how strong is spider silk? You know, spider silk is, it, the thing about it is it's strong and very light. So relative to something, say, Kevlar's that we're used to thinking of extremely strong materials, they are on par in strength, but then also incredibly light. They're also much stretchier, which makes them good for some things and bad for others. But those extremely fine threads 
of spider silk are you know, three, four, five x stronger than than silkworm silk that you find in in garments. Why? Why did the spider evolve to make something five times stronger than a worm? Well, that's exactly what we were trying to figure out. Um, we believe we being the spider silk community, a lot of it has to do with you need a very strong net to catch these darts of flies that are flying around and uh, landing or hitting a web in order mm. to need something strong so it doesn't break through. Um, okay. That, uh, that, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. So, uh, you know, how, how strong is it? Like if you could produce, let's say, spider silk and the, you know, the enough of it so that it's like as dense as a pencil, let's say. So instead of a tiny little thread, you had like a pencil's thickness of it. How strong would that be? That's that's such a that's a question that's so in the depths of the lore of spider silk. Everybody says if you could stop a Boeing uh, 747 with spider silk as thick as a pencil. Doesn't quite work that way. Um, but let's just say, you know, in as many years ago, uh, a group of, of gentlemen went to Madagascar and made a tapestry out of spider silk that they reeled out of spiders. Now this is touring the world. It's under lock and key under glass, but from the people who <laughs> felt it, they say it feels soft as silk, but strong as a bike lock. Wow. How, how did, did they farm the spiders? Were they, were they just collecting webs from the forest? Like, what, what was the method of collection here? They actually took spiders, golden orb weaver spiders, so they're nearly the size with legs in all sizes of your hand, um, took golden orb weavers, sort of held them down, constrained them down, and slowly reeled the silk out of them and oh, made the arms, put it back into the, back into the uh, forest, allowed them to regenerate silk, they went, spent five years, a million fifty three thousand spiders, I believe. Same so they, multiple so times. They physically restrained over a million spiders to do this. Mm-hmm. It took five years, five hundred thousand dollars to make this tap. If you Google spider silk tapestry, you will find it. Yeah, um, wow, it's it's quite a stunning piece, but it also shows you just how inaccessible some of these just outstanding material properties that nature has evolved are. Right. So, okay. So obviously if there's going to be an industry of spiders, um, you know, nobody is going to be uh, pinning down millions of spiders and you can't farm them because they will, you know, attack each other since they're solitary animals who aren't, uh, they don't want to live together. (laughs) So your idea then back in the, um, in the late 2000s was essentially to program microbes to make the, the proteins that are in spider silk. Is that correct? Well, yes. Yeah. So to, to go back to the point that I was working on those micro machines, my part of the puzzle was Vi was very interested in these spiders make this protein that somehow magically turns into a fiber. So I was very focused on how does that work? How does this goo, it's a liquid inside the spiders, turn into this incredibly strong, incredibly fine fiber? And serendipitously, I was introduced uh, to my co-founder across the bay, who was at UCSF, studying how do we engineer microbes to produce that protein. And so when we got together, it was like, oh, hey, you're (laughs) working on how to produce that protein without spiders. I'm working on how to turn that protein into fibers without spiders. Wow, yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, the universe of people fascinated by spider silk, it must have been like love at first sight. I mean, yeah, yeah, there is not many of us on the West Coast. <laughs> and the fact that we found each other and we're only 25 minutes away from each other is the unlikeliest of circumstances. Much of the <laughs> early days of bolt threads 
feels like a fairy tale and uh, just complete serendipity. So how did you get started then? Uh, Were you getting grants? Were you getting investments? Like you guys decide you want to start this company to actually try to engineer spider silk without the spiders. Like, what do you think? Obviously you need money. Where'd you get it? Yeah, um, government grants. Uh, It was, now there are more more angel investors and uh, more tools like even Y Combinator now has, uh, supports a lot of biological development. There were just fewer ways to get money back then. The only way was through government grants. And it was a very great, uh, great mechanism. Um, you get an SBIR, small business innovation grant from NSF or NIH, depending on, on what area your technology was going into. And it's non-dilutive funding, a hundred thousand dollars, to 150. And so we were still in graduate school. We wrote some grants saying, we think we have new technology that no one's ever tried before to make spider silk without spiders. And we wrote a whole grant about our proposal and we got all our grants. I mean, we, I think we applied for four and we're counting on maybe getting one and we got them all. So we quickly finished up our, our PhD theses and got to work. Um, After that, we spent a year working and actually got investment for the broader vision of the company um, from a VC. Wow. Who was the first VC who believed in uh, spider silk without the spiders? Uh, It was Foundation Capital. We, um, and Steve Vassallo over there, who had actually been very intrigued by spider silk and was looking for, uh, to see if anybody and who who was working on trying to figure out how to make it Hmm. and commercialize it. So what was your thought? I mean, you obviously weren't thinking about um, customer applications, as you said earlier. What was it that you were thinking you would do with this if you were able to produce it in in industrial scale? So quite, I mean, the journey has been quite long and the learnings have been um, numerous and compounded. We were so sort of innocent and filled with youthful hubris back then. It was, it was we are going to figure out how to make spider silk and we're going to figure out what to do with it. Underlying that was a general belief that we can access, if we can holistically access, access materials in nature with our technology platform, we're just going to keep finding out what to do with these things because they're quite incredible. Mm-hmm. We learned over time uh, how important customer feedback uh, is in that process. Um, but in the beginning, when we were just writing grants, it was, you know, we think natural materials are cool. We know how to do this spider silk thing. We're going to figure, we'll figure it out from there. Hmm. But so did you have any ideas in your mind? I mean, you mentioned Kevlar. So are you thinking, oh yeah, we can sell this to the military to have lightweight bulletproof vests as an example, or to police officers? Like, surely you must have fantasized yeah. about some application. Yeah, of course. Um, so t- uh, we talked about everything from lightweight uh, bulletproof vests to high strength garments for the military that don't melt because uh, most the synthetic polymers melt uh, when exposed to high heat, like hot shrapnel, um, to surfboard composites, uh, to sails. We talked about uh, sails that for, because mm. at that time, everyone was talking in the Bay Area about you know Larry Ellison's racing. Um, 
Uh, sales meaning S-A-I-O-S. S-A-I-O, thank you. Um, And a lot about biodegradable sales that could then, you know, you could dispose of easily once they're done after a race. So all of these real performance applications. And it wasn't till about not long, six months in that we started seeing not just where performance was necessary, but just performance from the aspect of sustainability needed a lot of new solutions within apparel generally, let alone performance apparel. Mm, I see. Interesting. So I, I don't want to fast forward uh, too quickly, but so if you're getting these government grants like uh, from NSF or NIH, you all of a sudden start going to VC money and you fast forward, let's just say to today, David, like how much has the company raised today? How, like what's the growth? And then we want to talk about how you got there, but like how much has Bolt Fred's raised to date? Oh, Wow. Um, you know, not including grants, it's a little over $200 million wow. Cumul- wow. cumulatively raised. Um, it's also been yeah. 10, 10 some odd years of operating. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's been quite, a, it's been quite a journey. Um, yeah. And so in terms, did correct me if I'm wrong, there was some commercialization of the spider silk, right? Like you guys were selling, was it, were there some ties that were sold as my recollection? Yeah. Uh, as we were scaling up our, our spider silk production and we were, um, we, we can, we're trying to continuously improve our process as well as demonstrate the commercial potential. Uh, we launched these 50, uh, the, a couple different product here. Let me just start over. <laughs> you can cut that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, as we were scaling up our spider silk production, and we were on a, under a lot of pressure to enter, enter the commercial marketplace um, because we had been so far just doing so much R&D but needed to really demonstrate that we can deliver product, um, not just to our investors but to the public, we launched a series of ties that we made um, with our silk uh, just to demonstrate that we could launch, we could make spider silk and could launch it in multiple unit qualities. The history of the field ha- was littered with one-off demos with somebody made, brute forced a single unit and that was it. We were like, no, we were going to sell in consumers and sell in, in ever-increasing quantities. So we made ties then we launched uh, beanies, um, and the ties were 50 units that all sold out. The beanies were several hundred units that all sold out. Uh, we even made some products that use spider silk in a solid form, not fibers form. As we continued to iterate on product and um, form factor, performance properties, uh, it was then that we caught the eye of Stella McCartney, who helped really push us into the more high fashion area and and inspire the minds therein with uh, the dress she made, the gold uh, spider silk dress, as well as some of the subsequent garments. Wow. So Stella McCartney, uh, of course, the daughter of uh, Paul McCartney and a fashion designer. How, how did she even hear about what you're doing? Was it just through buzz, of, you know, word of mouth regarding these new ties or what? You know, Stella had, um, again, I got to give her a lot of credit uh, for how proactive and ahead of the curve she was. She had hired someone to lead her sustainability efforts. And I don't know how they found us, but they just cold reached out 
And so we invited them in and we brought... So you just, you just got an email from Stella McCartney? From, St- from someone who worked for Stella McCartney, but at <laughs> StellaMcCartney.com <laughs> saying, you know, we want to know more. And hmm. when we showed Stella what we were up to, she came by with her team. She loved everything about the idea of inspired by nature, meant to reintegrate back in the environment, grown from the environment. How do we leverage evolution and what nature has built to make better materials and products? And so she became our, you know, our number one fan and helped us build out consistently better more um, luxurious demonstrations of the material, which I believe really helped show the promise to others in high fashion because our history was really, we were able to get a lot of attention from the outdoor industry to give them credit. The outdoor industry was very far ahead of everyone else. And, you know, companies like Patagonia, who we spent a lot of time working with, were looking for new materials that were better for the environment before um, many others. And mm-hmm. then Stella helped popularize it as well within, within the fashion world. Yeah, it does seem like if you're going to have this like really amazing um, material, like why waste it on a beanie when you could be doing something that's far higher value, right? Oh, I mean, of course. I, 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 I actually was one of the people who uh, bid on, or I don't know, I put my hat in the ring to get one of those 50 ties, although sadly I, I did not no. get one. Um, my apologies. But, <laughs> but I mean, even that, I mean, it's, you know, it's just a tie. Like, you know, how much is a tie going to go for compared to some like high-end fashion or even military use as, as an example? So it, it seems like it would make a lot more sense to, to go into that. But so then, you know, if you're thinking about this silk that you're using for fashion and eventually something happens where you say, well, actually, rather than silk, we're going to, you know, pivot away or not really pivot away from, but add to our portfolio, not just the idea of making spider silk, but actually using, uh, you know, fungi to make leather and replace leather. So what led you to make that? And when did you start getting into the mycelium game as opposed to just thinking that, you know, we're a spider, a spider silk startup? Yeah, that it's a great question. That's its own interesting story in that we had a substantial number of partners who were playing with our silk, looking at our silk, evaluating. Everybody was excited. Everybody was curious, what can we do with this? At the same time, we always thought leather was this problematic material, particularly um, from just an animal cruelty vegan perspective, but a growing awareness about the greenhouse gas contributions. And we had, you just kept throwing around ideas of how we would one day try to make a leather material. And our expertise was making proteins. You know, spider silk is a protein. We have gotten very good at growing up silk, which is a protein. Maybe we could just then make collagen. Leather is substantially composed of collagen and skin. Maybe one day we'll do that. I mean, but we had seen some other people around. Um, working on that approach, which is how do I grow <laughs> collagen and then try to form it into leather. And right, that's, that's basically the premise of what modern meadow is doing. Right. Um, and we just, as very much a material scientist myself, I wasn't quite sure, I hadn't seen enough progress on that front to feel like that was the most viable solution for making a high quality leather, a luxurious leather. Um, 
Now, at the same time, and we had been, and this sort of goes to your earlier question about what were your applications. With all the people who were working on fibers with us, we started getting a lot of people asking us, do you have a leather offering? And the converse of the conversation kept picking up our, um, as we found that particularly within luxury brands, there was an incredibly fast-growing concern that that leather was coming from livestock, and that was a huge contributor to greenhouse gases on top of the animal welfare. But I think the big concern there was greenhouse gases for them. And the only alternative was pleather, or what was being dubbed vegan leather, and that is made from petroleum. So you can, you can get away from greenhouse gas emissions through livestock, but then you end up with a plastic-based product that buzzes biodegrade. Now, there are other aspects of pleather that doesn't, don't quite have the luxury feel of leather, but ultimately, that was your trade-off. And, right. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I, I think a lot of people, when they hear the term pleather, they think it's a play on the word pleasure when actually oh. it just means plas- plastic leather. Yeah, you know, that never yeah. occurred to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it, it is intended to, you know, in, uh, connote that this is a pleasurable product, right? Pleather, I mean. Uh, but yeah, I mean, really, it's just plastic leather. So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, from an animal welfare perspective, it's better than killing cows. But at the same time, uh, you know, there are still some in- environmental trade-offs that you have there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, so so at that point, we knew that there was going to be demand or there was demand for leather, and it seemed a leather replacement that had dramatic sustainability attributes. Like the 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 concern was very high, and that that request was sort of outpacing people's interest in iterating with fibers. Fibers fibers made us uh, the concern about microfibers had been growing, but suddenly the concern about cows and animal agriculture was growing faster, and at that time, um, we learned about mycelium. And when we saw the structure of mycelium and how you could grow it into a sheet, mycelium being the roots of mushrooms, not the mushrooms you eat, but the roots under the ground. And if you can grow them in a controlled way, they make these sheets um, that really give you a much more uh, leather-like feel um, because of the way these roots create little tiny fibers that all entangle with each other and touch and connect and rub against one each other, kind of like how all the collagen networks form in hide, animal skin. But you don't have to try to reproduce it. It grows that way. And we, you know, my co-founder and I looked at each other and said, we think this is, this is the viable way to make a replacement to leather. And from mm-hmm. there, we said, okay, now we're going to try to uh, figure out how, how to grow mycelium as well. And <laughs> so what was your first step though, David? Because you, know, you guys were bioengineering spider silk, right? Which is you know, something very different from growing mycelium. Presumably, you don't have a background in mycology where you're like, Yo, we need to hire some mycologists here. Like, what, what was your first step to thinking, okay, how are we going to figure out to do this entirely novel process that we don't have any idea about? So that's, that's, I always find that question very fascinating. And again, maybe this comes back to some sort of youthful hubris. We looked at it as 
these processes are surprisingly similar. Whereas a lot of the seasoned uh, scientists we talked to who we sought help from was like, were like, oh no, those are different fields. You shouldn't try to um, pursue what we'd say liquid fermentation, growing microbes in that, and solid state fermentation, which is growing fungus on, on say, sawdust. Those, those are two different things. And we looked and we said, it's all fermentation. It's all getting your feedstock, sterilizing your feedstock, growing your microbe, purifying your output, whether it's silk or mycelium, and then forming it into your material. And what we had become so good at as a company through all these years of trials with silk and different iterations thereof was prototyping biomaterials and integrating with product developers and designers from the textile world where there's many qualitative attributes that are extremely difficult to quantify. So this isn't just what is strength, what is abrasion resistance? This is, does it drape well? Does it, does it age well? How does it feel against the skin? We had become so skilled at that because if you look at that Stella McCartney silk dress, you know, it has to hang just right. And as much as, as, much as that's in the, the knitting and the weaving, if your fiber's too stiff, it's not gonna do that. You might have the strongest fiber in the world, but if it's too stiff, it's not gonna drape well. So those are the attributes we had, we had integrated really well, how to scale up biological processes and prototype with them hand-in-hand hand with textile designers. And so when mm. we looked at that, we said, you know, we just need to gain, grow our knowledge around mycelium growth, but we think we can connect that just as we did with silk um, on the leather side. And so wow. for us, and I'm not saying that to be, um, to come off as arrogant, and it, many people thought we were foolish. <laughs> it just it seemed doable, and it turned out to be. When, when was this? Like, so you know, for years you're working on spider silk, then you decide we need to get into the mycelium game. What year was that? That was maybe three years ago. So think about so it this a- way: it took us maybe seven years to build and scale up spider silk production, and then turn that almost that same crank three years on mycelium. Was it difficult to persuade investors on this? Like, they're like, hey, listen, we've been giving you guys money for seven years and you don't have any product on the market yet. Now you want to go switch to this other product. Like, was that a difficult sell or were they just so hot on the idea of mycelium that they were like, yo, we trust these guys? Um, Our investors have been very enthusiastic from the beginning, and you know, we've talked to them about this being our vision of us having multiple different product lines. We never pitched them on the idea of we are going to be one specialty material and we're going to grow from there. So the notion that we were going to continue to iterate around a suite of different products to all grounded in sustainability, um, whether it be for apparel to all the way to personal care. That was a very that was a very comfortable idea, and people are very excited about the broad vision of us being able to deliver multiple things. Now, there was the pressure of okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, you you have much less time to prove it's viable than you have had so far. <laughs> At some point, you have to deliver product. But when we 
did our first iterations and got extremely quick feedback from partners. And this is where the consortium that we've announced comes into play. Um, and our partners greenlit this at you know, the highest levels of their organization as this is something we're interested in. We trust both threads. They have been delivering to us and are extremely sophisticated in their analyses and development. And we want to work hard on this. So we're going to you know, commit mm-hmm. capital, put money behind this, uh, this mycelium leather work. And uh, we were able to show that, th- that this, is, this is really worth pursuing hard and leaning into hard. That's cool. That's really cool. Well, good for you guys. So let me ask you then, David. So you're growing this mycelium and I presume you have to do something to it, right? Like if, if you think about, you know, you take the the hide off of a cow, you don't just turn that into a car seat or into a watch yeah. strap. You have to, you know, for them, they have to remove the hair and the fat and then they have to tan it. What do you have to do to your mycelium to make it so that if I'm wearing, you know, a wristwatch with Milo, your mycelium leather on there, that it's not going to degrade and, and rot on my wrist <laughs> um it's funny you say not so it doesn't have to degrade and rot on your wrist um because it's made of fungus um <laughs> so we have to make sure the fungus is inactivated and doesn't just keep growing um <laughs> yes but, i don't i don't want it to degrade or to yeah. continue growing like how am i gonna what, what guarantee do i have what are you doing that this is gonna remain looking the way it does if i were to let's say buy a, a leather or a pleather watch right. yeah it's we have to do far fewer things than you have to do for leather. Now, this was this is sort of the beauty of being able to look at what a customer wants, say leather, and then re- reverse engineering and and then building back up into it. Is to say, rather than taking something that nature has grown, leather, it's a hide, and then putting all sorts of plastics and chromium and all the nasty chemicals that are associated with the leather industry on top of it, removing the hair, we get sort of to make it in a more pure form directly towards the product that's desired. So it's actually, at the end, much less manipulated. Um, You know, we do some softening and things like that, depending on exactly what the product attributes need to be. Because if you think about it, a watch strap feels very different from a leather jacket, which feels different from a leather shoe. We use leather as a catch-all term, but it actually means a number of different product grades, product qualities, all from cowhide. And we have to do, we have to do very little in order to um, get it to meet the base criteria. Then it's more a matter of customization, embossing patterns. People still want leather to look like leather. Um, so mm-hmm. we emboss it, ironically, with a cellular texture, um, mm-hmm. uh, even though it doesn't naturally have a cellular texture um, because it is, it is mycelium, not skin. Mm-hmm. Are you growing it just in, let's say, like uh, thick mats or are you growing it into a specific shape? So for example, if you wanted to, you know, could you grow it in the, in the shape of a wristwatch, let's say, and, and so you don't have to cut it into wristwatch shapes? Um, it turns out, you know, I love the story of, oh, we can grow it into any shape, we can grow it into your product. But right now, at large scale, and when you look at the economies of scale, that just, it's not feasible to make anything um, of any reasonable cost structure. 
just to yeah. be real. I mean, it's business for good. The business part's important to say we're <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna grow up watch straps in the shape of watch watch straps. So we grow sheets. We also yeah. work very tightly with um, existing uh, leather processing facilities. Now we maintain a fairly rigorous uh, sustainability criteria and corporate responsibility criteria that involve that includes not just chemistries but includes you know human rights um with our partners so um we work with but we do work with some great facilities in the industry and we have we have to match some of that large-scale equipment that's already there in the right sizes um where are you where are you doing this like you're working with these facilities like where is this mycelium growing where is it being tanned is this happening in northern california yeah you know, a, a lot of, we do have a grow facility um but that's more for prototyping and experimentation a lot of the large-scale work happens in europe uh that's where most of the mushroom expertise happens to be and all the high-end facilities that uh uh are consortium partners um like caring and such uh do their their leather processing work interesting so you're really growing this in europe and that's where the whole process uh, not only starts but is finished it's, it's yeah. not going somewhere else to be tanned or anything yeah it's it's mostly in europe and again that's that's by design of our customers and expertise you know when we have a global supply chain it's going to matter more where where are we going to ship it? What makes the most sense in, in terms of cost and carbon emissions? You know, we don't want to be uh, flying stuff around if we don't have to. Um, but you know, those are sort of good problems to have to be able to be in a position to optimize the supply chain for an infinitely more sustainable material than than hide leather. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I would have presumed that the greatest mushroom expertise was in China. I think that they produce like a, a huge portion of the global mushroom trade, but um, I, I don't know enough about that market to know. But um, but I know that they eat a lot of mushrooms over there. Yeah, I I was surprised as well when I learned. Um, you know, I think the majority of canned mushrooms. I think I'm not exactly positive on this number. Something the majority of canned mushrooms in the United States comes out of the Netherlands. Huh, interesting. So, uh, all right, David. So, you know, it's been a few years now and you're growing mycelium. You're trying to make a, a leather type product with it. You had this big announcement recently that you are now partnering with Adidas and a number of other folks. What does that mean, partnering? Are they investing in the company? Are they partnering with you as a customer? Like, that's pretty impressive to get a deal with Adidas because first and foremost, you know, just so you know, I wear a size 10 and a half. So <laughs> when you get the Adidas Milo shoes, you know where to send a, a pair. But second, um, you know, how did that happen? How did you get partnered for a product that doesn't even yet exist in the market? You have one of the most recognizable shoe companies in the world saying they want to release a product with you. How did that happen? <laughs> um, you know, it's, our, the consortium is the, the first of its kind. And uh, between Caring, Adidas, uh, Lululemon, Stella McCartney. Um, Do, does Lululemon make? I mean, I don't know enough about it. But do they, they make weather products? Um, no, uh, not oh. not currently that I'm aware of. Um, okay, so but they would you, they would be using Milo for something. Yes. It's not not the spider silk. Absolutely, they're not making like yoga pants with spider silk, and then they're using, yeah. using a leather a leather type. Product. The consortium is specifically around Milo. Um, there is. Okay. Uh, such demand for uh, an alternative to leather. And when we were able to demonstrate not just 
the aesthetic quality of the material, meaning we can make something that feels like genuine leather, which again is a very important distinction, as well as the ability to scale, get um, economics that are reasonable, and then iterate with those brand partners and be able to consistently deliver new and improved samples over and over again. And that's where we were working with. That's the sort of the engine we developed with silk and our other materials is just show novelty and then continue to work and iterate and become a trusted partner in innovation for these brands. We needed a mechanism ultimately to sort of stop the what what was historically kind of the battle of who you were going to commit to being exclusive with which then meant you couldn't supply to someone else it was how do we get everybody who works within who makes uh, makes products with leather to work together with us to help us make a replacement for leather that is more sustainable and so yeah. the consortium so- is, did you reach out to Adidas? Did they reach out to you? Like, how, how did you have some, you know, head of business development who did this? Like, what, what was the actual mechanics of this, you know, startup that's essentially pre-revenue partnering with one of the biggest uh, athletic companies on the planet? Yeah, they, they Adidas, to their credit, um, is very good about innovation and paying attention to innovation. And we had been working with them substantially um, on uh, thinking about uh, materials alongside fibers and spider silk uh, and stuff like that. And when we showed them Milo, they were extremely excited um, to to see an innovation there. And so, again, it's throughout this whole sort of storied history of both threads, a lot of what we built out was this engagement with these brands beyond just their innovation arms, beyond just their sustainability arms, but all the way through through the throughout uh, the brand and our ability to have touch points in all the areas we need to, to understand how to build out not just the products, but the product quality, how to integrate into supply chains. What is the effective price point? What does this need to have and be able to do by when and by how much um, to be an actual product in in uh, a material, in, in a consumer apparel product? And the consortium was a bunch of different companies who are in often in many ways competitors holding hands and saying we want to help foster sustainable future materials and we're gonna work with this company and really you know engage in that cycle of product development that's really awesome david so uh, let me ask you then you know when you put out the ties there were 50 of them you know you sold them for 314 dollars per tie which is a reference to pi 3.14 uh but is that what it's going to be like with adidas like you have said that in 2021 you intend to commercialize milo is that going to be the same type of commercialization where it's just a very limited time offering for a very high price or is this going to be something that's going to be a regular offering that people will be able to buy if they want it we we know what we need to build to be building towards a regular offering. This is we we are past the point of of simply demonstration. Um, there will always be demos, and there will always be you know exciting um, small launches uh, in order to show the potential of the material. But we we are going to be delivering thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands 
of units scaling into multiple millions. Great. When? You say we'll be doing tens of thousands in 2021, or do you think that'll be like in the next decade? No, no, no. We're talking about real scale starting in 2021. Great. Oh, it's really exciting. I'm, I'm really thrilled to hear that. Uh, <laughs> yes, as am I. <laughs> I'm sure, mm. I'm sure. Um, as are your investors, no doubt. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so speaking of then a decade out, like what do you envision? Um, I, I imagine that if somebody had said to you in 2011, what do you envision for 2021 for Bolt Threads, that there would be very little fidelity to what actually happened. So I realize there is, uh, as you say, perhaps some even some hubris in trying to predict a decade out. But if you're going to think about a decade out, like where do you see the company? And where do you see, let's just say, the weather industry, for example, since that's what you're currently working on uh, in the year uh, 2031? You know, I when we first were pitching, um, we pitched to one VC and we said we can make green materials, because that was the term of the time. So this was 10 years ago. And we were told, never pitch us green. No one wants to pay for green. That has, you know, flipped on its head a little. Some people do, some people are willing, or at least they understand they'll pay for a time being. Um, at the same time, I think we've we've learned how to develop the technology with enough sophistication that we can make a lot of things cost competitive or um, a lot of materials at better costs that are sustainable or green than their um, less sustainable counterparts. Um, I once gave a presentation at a conference where I predicted the future and said, all these natural materials that we otherwise have to manipulate with plastics and toxic chemistries in order to get them to do the functions we want. Um, we're going to replace them with sort of engineered natural materials that we are able to build up to serve that function in a much more holistic way with sustainable chemistries. And, you know, it's going to be the rare and exotic um, uh, fashions that use, that use, uh, materials that um were not were not engineered um i really see a future where there are so many polymers and material structures out there that are all you can be grown on forms of sugar and all can biodegrade over different time spans um, silk is fantastic at at that um, being able to control the time span it biodegrades and I see an opportunity where we can sub out a lot of the synthetic materials and maybe even some of the naturals that don't necessarily biodegrade in the way we want and when used at large scale is, are actually problematic, global scale are actually problematic for the environment um, and create a palette of offerings that are all can be chosen based on their uh, end of life um, requirements based on on their usage. So is it going to go down the drain? Are we going to be able to recycle it? How long is reasonable for this to for this to exist as a whole in the environment oh. mm -hmm. before it should be able to decompose? 
Yeah, well, that would be the ultimate, you know, rather than just talking about, um, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle, mm -hmm. you know, you actually have something just decompose at the end of its useful life. That would seem to be the optimal. In fact, I've wondered like whether, you know, you think about all these fishing boats that are the number one reason why, you know, whales and others are, are getting uh, caught up and dying in these fishing nets, um, you know, like the biggest threat to whales isn't whaling boats, it's fishing boats. And I've wondered like, you know, I, I don't want people out there fishing, needless to say, but, uh, you know, it would be nice if those nets could be programmed to at some point decompose. And I don't know if that's possible or not, but it seems like it would be worth investigating. Are you aware of anybody working on anything like that? You know, it's, it's, uh, I forgot to say when you asked what were the markets for spider silk, that was one of the things we initially looked at decomposing, oh, really? decom de uh, biodeg marine biodegradable fishing hmm. nets. So so how would that work? Like, you know, cause the, the fisherman doesn't want it to biodegrade while they're using it. But so how would it would have just after a certain number of years, it's no longer functional. Yeah. You would, you know, it's, it's a, it's a challenging problem balancing biodegradability and strength because in many cases they tend to, um, uh, go in opposite directions. Um, but yeah, you would probably think of something that lasted just long enough for you with high strengths for you to be able to um catch your fish but that if bits or parts or a whole net got got um lost in the ocean it would um eventually biodegrade from microbes or fish could eat it over a mm. long period of time now if it's sufficiently strong to catch a whale you know, I don't know how long is reasonable, like how do you create mechanisms such that it can break out even if it's before it biodegrades? You know, that's that's a more different right. time scales over which you need to think about. Um, you know, my expertise is more on the biodegradation de than the mechanics of um, the mechanics of, you know, how do you how do you create a structure that a big fish could break through without it being um, on them? You say if, if for say 50 days, if you say 50 days is a criteria over which it biodegrades. Um, right. Cause you know, presumably, you know, dolphins get caught in this or presumably struggling pretty violently. So if that's not enough to break that down, you know, that, that would be, you would need something pretty unique. Um, but you know, on this note, David, let me ask you uh, as we, uh, start to wrap up here. So you've thought about fishing, uh, and materials that would be better for fishing. That's, are there any other ideas? Like, you know, you guys are working on spider silk, you're working on mycelium, you're even doing uh, bee silk, which we didn't get to talk about sadly, but are there other, um, things that you wish somebody else would take up that you think would be good for the world? Some idea for a company that maybe some listener will be inspired by your words to start themselves. Yeah. Um, anything climate change related, I, I encourage, I know that's just, that's general, it's such a general, uh, topic, but it just feels like we're in such a race against time to slow down the effects of change. So I strongly encourage anyone to, to get into those, anything climate related, related, whether it's energy storage, um, electrification of all vehicles, you know, fighting greenhouse gases in, in any which way. Like I, that, that's where I strongly encourage people to people to go into. Some of the things I'm interested in, unfortunately, I it's hard to see um, where the business opportunity is. So I, I encourage people to think deeply about it, but a lot of it is cleanup. When we are able to get all of these 
sort of biodegradable, biocompatible polymers out there. What are we going to do about all the microfibers and microplastics in the air and water? You know, we're at Bolt, we're doing some things with B-Silk, as you mentioned, to uh, eliminate synthetic polymers and personal care as well as microplastics. But, you know, there's going to be a load to clean up. And I don't, I don't know, I don't have an answer as to how to do uh, the collection or the sorting or the cleanup. But really, I don't, I'm not sure how you even make that economical for a business. Maybe it's, maybe it's a nonprofit, nonprofit work um, or maybe someone more clever than me out there has an idea. But um, mm-hmm. I, I find myself fairly concerned even looking at the dust around my house in San Francisco. I'm like, these are all little fibers and it's all accumulating somewhere and they're all going to last 500 to 1,000 years and then probably in my lungs and in your lungs. And they're, you know, they're saying now we're going to have a, you know, in the geologists are going to say we have a plastosphere where it's, you know, entire, entire uh, time period of our sort of geology where things are covered in plastic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There are some fungi that aren't even uh, engineered. They're just natural fungi that appear to be able to consume the uh, many types of of human created plastics, and so it, it would be an interesting. Uh, business idea to partner with, let's say, some municipality to, for example, apply those fungi or maybe even just the enzymes, you create the mm-hmm. enzymes that they're making to break that down. Yeah. I love, I just, as a pure sort of fascination, I love the idea of bioremediation. And I want someone to figure out how to make more full-fledged businesses out of it to clean up a whole number of things, whether it be ocean plastics, microfibers in the air, in the ocean, I mean, there's so much in the microbial world that we barely understand. For example, if you think about like radiotrophic fungi, which are thriving in the Chernobyl reactors, they're just consuming all that radiation. Like that, and that's not an engineered microbe. That is a natural microbe that just consumes radiation. So you know, and there's others. There's other fungi that will consume plastic. So you know that would be quite a fascinating business for somebody to take up. So uh, David, I hope that uh, there is some time where there is somebody else on this show who was listening to this episode and like, ah, I was listening to David from Bolt Threads, and I decided to start my own uh, plastic uh, remediation uh, (laughs) uh, company because of you. So hopefully that will happen. We'll see. I hope so. Uh, so finally, David, you know, you've been at this for over a decade. You are a scientist at heart, but you're also an entrepreneur uh, by trade. Is there anything that you would recommend to anybody else who is inspired by your story and what you're doing at Bolt Threads that you think would be useful for them that has been particularly helpful for you in your own scientific and entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, you know, it's it sounds it sounds um, sort of cliched to say, listen to your customer. Um, but at some point, I think as a technologist, you even if you're presenting a new technology and get uh, potential customers excited about something they did not know existed, you at some point, you do have to start iterating with them. And I think so many of us, myself included, ha- get caught in a trap and enthusiasm of, over technology, over the pragmatics of what is uh, needed by who the person who would be paying for it. Um, there's a great video I like that's, I think if you Google, you have Steve Jobs insult response, where he talks about leading customer first. 
and how engineers can make tons of great things, but what is going to sell at scale? And that scale, particularly when we're talking about sustainability and climate, is so important. I'm not going to dent make a dent at scale um, if someone just wants to launch, you know, 50 pairs of shoes. I need to I need to really make my impact through selling millions so that I can I can actively affect the greenhouse uh, impact and the climate impact and the environmental impact of uh, livestock or any of the other materials that we make. Right. Well, I couldn't possibly agree with you more. Um, science experiments are very cool, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily on their own save the world. And the way that that happens almost always is through some invention that actually gets commercialized and utilized by huge numbers of people. So uh, I'll be rooting for Bolt Threads to break out onto the commercial scene. And I'll be looking forward to sending you a photo of the uh, the Adidas that I get when you ship them uh, my way, David. So, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for everything you're doing. You've had a wild ride and it is a really inspirational story. So I am grateful for what you're doing and I can't wait to see Milo come out on the market and I can't wait to be one of your own customers, actually. I can't wait either. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.